Welcome back. Our next guest is a successful Canadian First Nations leader and entrepreneur. He's a member of the Order of Canada, has been chief of the Osoyoos Indian Band in the Okanagan in BC uh, for almost 40 years and has played a big role in the economic success that that community has enjoyed over the years to the extent that it's been referred to as the miracle in the desert referring to their their economic success and maybe the model that can serve as for other communities across the country. He's the author of a book. It's called Res Rules, My Indictment of Canada's and America's Systemic Racism Against Indigenous Peoples. The paperback edition of the book is out tomorrow. Chief Clarence Louie on the line with us here this afternoon. Chief, thanks so much for making some time for us. Welcome to the program. It's good to be with your program. It's been uh, just over a year since you first released the book. We mentioned the paperback is out this week. How do you feel over the last year and the conversations you've been having about, you know, the reaction to the book, how the books have been received, and I guess maybe more importantly, whether we've seen, you've seen some progress on on some of these important issues you write about? Well, the response has been uh, pretty good. I mean, I'm always thankful um, to get the emails from whether it's Native people or non-Native people about the impact the book has had on their thinking uh, towards Canada and the U.S. And, you know, it's good to see that even some companies um, have had me speak to their entire staff and uh, have, have given my book to, to their entire staff about yeah. uh, truth and reconciliation and uh, uh, the understanding of how uh, Canada and the U.S. was formed in relation to the injustices towards the First Nations people. Right, and there's been a lot of focus on reconciliation and how we move forward on that. What, what what does reconciliation mean to you, and what does progress look like? Well, re- reconciliation uh, can't be cheap. It can't be just land acknowledgments or flying our flag at your municipal hall or putting up a, a, a piece of Native art in your office or attending marches or wearing an orange shirt. I mean, th- those, th- th- those things are are nice gestures, but they're just baby steps. I mean, the, the original problem that has existed for 500 years has been land. And in Osiyu Sinyaban's case, we're still 4,000 acres short of our original reserve size. And, mm-hmm. and the province still controls some of those lands. So to me, reconciliation has to start with the land and us getting our old reserve lands back. In terms of the residential schools legacy and, you know, certainly the, the discoveries that have been made of residential schools over the last years have really highlighted, I, I think, to a lot of Canadians, just the seriousness of the issue. But that doesn't tell the full story of the, the legacy of decades and decades of the schools, these schools. What, what do Canadians still need to understand about the, the legacy and the impact? Well, first of all, to me, those um, unmarked graves are a crime scene. And there's no way that all of those hundreds of kids died of natural causes, died of tuberculosis or sickness. I firmly believe many of those kids were killed, were, were, were killed. I mean, so I'd like to see um, some investigation done to where, you know, it's proven that, that our guess is that many of those kids were actually killed by the staff of the, whereas the priests or the nuns or the whoever that was in control of those native kids that, that uh, that had come out that uh, many of those kids were actually murdered in those schools. And the other fact that Canada has to wrestle with is for Canada, you know, priding itself on being a bilingual country, that First Nation languages were were destroyed at those schools. And 
and amongst my people, very few of my people speak the Okanagan language, and we need mm -hmm. to spend millions of dollars in language programming to make sure that not one First Nation language ever becomes extinct in this country called Canada. Right. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're undoing a lot of the damage or trying to undo a lot of the damage that these schools did. Are, are you seeing uh, examples, though, where now steps are being taken to to preserve and, and grow those those languages? Well, there's there's small steps being done. There's a small amount of funding being put out there. But again, 100 years plus of uh, of genocidal practices against First Nation people, language, and culture is not going to be fixed in a matter of, you know, because of a right. few small grants. Right. We need ongoing uh, funding commitments from the federal and provincial governments and corporate Canada to step forward because all, all the billions being made on, uh, on uh, natural resources, for example, come off of First Nation lands and language programming uh, programs cost a lot of money to keep going into and what we're doing here at Osuyus, uh the Osuyus Indian man is bucking up hundreds of thousands of dollars out of our own money to try and preserve our language what do you make of the indian act there have been calls to to repeal the indian act some see the indian act as as antiquated as an obstacle what, what are your thoughts it's going to be hard to get 600 different Indian bands to agree on what changes to the Indian Act need to be made. Sure, there's some common sense changes that, that need to be made. Um, but but again, that's, that, that's a long, that's, that's decades in the making. Right. It, take, it takes decades to do a single treaty, let alone uh, the Indian Act, which goes from coast to coast. So I think the focus needs to be on language language programming language funding and the return of the the specific claims and the land claims that that are being settled there's some that are being settled in the hundreds of millions of dollars which is good non-natives need to understand that, that native people we don't make up land claims we don't just pull them out of the air mm -hmm. they're documented injustices and uh we need the return of where possible those provincial lands that were old Indian reserve lands. Let's talk about uh, the, the Osoyoos Indian Band and, and your leadership. And, and obviously you've spoken uh, many times over the years about uh, the, the success of the Osoyoos Indian Band. It's uh, certainly a part of this story. Let's talk about, you know, first of all, you, you first became chief. I think you were just 24, 25 years old, so, so very young at the time. But what, what motivated or, or inspired you to, to want to take on that leadership at that point? I attended the, at that time it was called Native American Studies Programs at the University of Regina, Saskatchewan Indian Federated College, then later transferred to the University of Lethbridge. As a teenager, I wanted to research and learn why are First Nations people at the bottom of every socioeconomic scale and two of the richest countries in the world, being Canada, in the United States, and sad fact is, 40 some odd years later, many First Nations are still at the bottom of every socioeconomic stat in this country. Right. So there, there's a lot of injustices. Residential schools, have, of course, played a big role in that. Land claim uh, uh, 
land ripoffs, broken treaties. You could go on and on. Mm. Canada and, and the United States purposely didn't include First Nations people in the Canadian or American dream. And it needs to be held held accountable for that. The success of the Osoyoos Indian Band has often been referred to as the, the miracle in the desert, the extraordinary business success, the opportunities uh, that, that have been created there. How was that achieved? What, what do we need to understand about how, how that success was achieved? Well, there, there are a handful of Indian reserves in every province that can put up their hand and say, we're making millions of dollars on our own. We're creating hundreds of jobs on our own even with the obstacles of the Indian Act and even with the obstacles of our best lands being being taken away. I mean, the, the resiliency and the entrepreneurial spirit of the First Nations people, the government didn't kill that. And if you look at the history of this country, the first entrepreneurs of this country, the first business people were the First Nations. Our ancestral graves prove that. There's an ancestral grave found in Osuyus where the items found in that grave didn't come from BC, didn't come from Washington state. They came from further south. So that means that our people had a system of trade and commerce way before the French and English came into our territories. We were the first entrepreneurs and business people of of these lands. And that's what we have to get back to. We have to get back on our economic horse. You know, the federal and provincial government and the settlers kicked us off our horse and wanted and, and purposely wanted us to become beggars in our own lands. We have to get back to our, to our ancestral entrepreneurial spirit that we held for 10,000 years. Mm-hmm. Different First Nations communities face different challenges, clearly, but what is the message you have to other communities or, or how these kinds of successes can be replicated elsewhere? Uh, they, they, they are being replicated elsewhere, all, all over the United States and Canada. Mm-hmm. And um, other First Nations just need to realize that that we need to push the federal and provincial governments. Um, our court cases were winning at the Supreme Court of Canada, our hunting rights, our fishing rights, our taxation rights, and in other cases that were winning our Aboriginal title and rights. You know, we're proving that... Uh, that these natural resources companies, especially in whether it's oil and gas, forestry, or whatever it may be, they have to include First Nations people as part of the business equation. Yeah, And that we need to focus on business just like the non-natives do. Every time there's an election, what's the number one issue to non-natives? It's always the economy. We have to make the economy our number one focus as well so that we can pay for all of our language programs, cultural programs, whatever programs and services that are needed on on every Indian reserve. Right. So then is that the message for, for non-Native Canadians, not just, you know, the importance of these partnerships and building these partnerships, but also not being obstacles, not getting in the way of, of this kind of success? Well, exactly. You know, um, the, uh, the equation is simple. Once you connect the dots, it's pretty damn simple. Is it, is, is it, is it better to have a poor neighbor or, or better to have a neighbor at the same standard of living that you're receiving? Yeah. And I think most Canadians uh, are, are want First Nations people to join the Canadian dream. They want First Nations people to be successful. 
because when an Indian reserve is successful, this is shown here next to Oliver and Osuyus, the towns of Oliver and Osuyus realize the economic impact that the Osuyus Indian Band has in this region, and they're very supportive of, of, of our projects. And something else you write about, and, and maybe part of it is your frustration that it shouldn't be a big issue, but it seems to, to a lot of people, maybe to a lot of non-native uh, you know, Canadians and Americans, the whole issue around sports teams and, and sports logos, and we've seen major sports teams change their names, change their logos, the perception that a lot of these are offensive, but, but you take a different view that in some cases, you know, maybe these are signs of respect, and, and maybe we should focus on issues that matter as opposed to maybe what are sometimes silly kinds of debates. Let me get your thoughts on that. Well, of course, I mean, it's, it's easy to, 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 to start a protest on most anything. It's easy to go on social media and, 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 and get a lot of hits, especially if you want to raise issues about, about discrimination and about, um, you know, um, things not being done right for minority groups. And of course, I, I uphold First Nation logos in sports because, as, you know, the, the fact is most, even most Natives, and you have to remember that, that Native people are like any group of people. We don't all agree. Right. And, 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 and the sports team should have been listening to those that love the sports logos, the, the Native use of whether it's the Chicago Blackhawks or the Cleveland Indians, for example. Every reserve I've been on, I see res boys and girls wearing those hats. Mm-hmm. And it's not that they're, every time I ask them, are you a Cleveland Indians fan? I don't even watch baseball. Right. I know why they're wearing that logo, because it's a native logo. And, and anyone that understands sports will realize that a sports name and a sports logo is the ultimate honor. That's what you wear onto the ice. That's what you wear onto the field. It has nothing to do with being discriminatory or, or negative in any way. Any sports logo or name is the, is the ultimate honor. If you truly understand sports and are a sports fan or, or you play sports, you, you'll, you'll know that, that, that a team logo and a team name is very, very important. So I, I support the use of uh, the use of the Chicago Black. In fact, I, I sent a letter to a non-native team not far from Osuyus that was getting the hell kicked out of them on social media by all these whiners saying you can't wear uh, the Chicago Blackhawks jersey. It, it's demeaning to First Nations. It's it's embarrassing or you can't use the name Warriors. Mm-hmm. And I, I wrote a letter in defense of that non-native team saying wear that logo, use the name Warriors and tell those whiners that if they want to keep on whining, whine to me, and I'll tell them to shut the hell up. Yeah. Uh, so back to why you wrote the book. Uh, you know, there's an incredible story to be told here, obviously, but but part of it is a, a bit of a wake-up call uh, to, to call attention to issues and, and to try to move a lot of these conversations forward. Do you maintain some some optimism that, that we can do this or that, that we're headed in the right direction? Most Canadians want First Nations people to be properly reconciled with their lands, uh, the way they're treated in this country, to be part of this country. And and I believe we're taking baby steps in the in the right direction. But I, I've called for it's it, it's time to stop the baby steps and let's take some adult steps. 
Let's take some adult steps and reconcile this backlog of specific claims. Let's reconcile the uh, the loss of the land and, and let's put some real money and effort towards First Nation languages in this country. And then that's going to, it, it is, is the Minister of Indian Affairs said, you can't do reconciliation on the cheap. It can't right. be just words and a few small grants. It, it, it's going to, it, it, it costs a lot to run those residential schools every year. And it's going to cost a lot to properly reconcile First Nation issues in this country. No doubt. The book is called Res Rules, uh, out in paperback this week. Uh, Chief Louie, thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate the conversation. Thank you, Rob, and thanks for the call. There you go. All the best. That is uh, Chief Clarence Louie, longtime uh, chief of the Osoyoos Indian Band, author of the book Res Rules, paperback edition, out tomorrow. Okay, one more break here. Back to wrap things up on a Monday afternoon right after this. It's unfortunate when they express themselves to the extent where they're obviously intentionally trying to stop you from speaking. They can protest, they can put forth their views. I am able to put my for my views, and then hopefully we can have a, a bit of a dialogue. Okay, that is Dr. Frances Widdowson, formerly of Mount Royal University, and her comments last week uh, in the aftermath of what happened at the University of Lethbridge. Now, she's of the opinion that uh, different ideas should be discussed and debated. But that's not what happened. Now, Francis Widowson was invited by a faculty member at the University of Lethbridge to come give a speech. Nobody was being forced to attend that speech. Although, given her views on certain topics, like residential schools or the Black Lives Matter movement, she's seen as controversial. Okay, fair enough. And maybe she embraces the idea of being controversial. I, I don't know. But again, nobody's being forced to go see her speech. And in fact, there was a counter event that was set up to, to offer a different perspective on these matters, which is good. And that's what the president of the University of Lethbridge first noted last week in responding to this event to say, yeah, we don't agree with her views. Now, we're encouraged to see that there's a counter event happening, but, you know, it is a matter of freedom of speech and academic freedom. That changed four days later, though. The university reversed course, said they would not allow the speech to go ahead. Francis Widowson showed up at the university anyway. Uh, but a large crowd, maybe as many as 700 protesters who were there, basically prevented her from speaking. So it was an unfortunate episode, I, I think, all around. And it got the attention of the Alberta government, which in 2019 uh, did require universities, uh, with one exception, uh, to post to have uh, free speech policies. And it was a policy that the University of Lethbridge had originally cited in allowing this speech to go ahead. So there may be more changes coming, uh, some requirements were announced uh, by the advanced education minister on friday with the hint that maybe there's more to come joining us uh, to talk about all of this uh, is the aforementioned uh, minister of advanced education for the province of alberta demetrius uh, nicolaitis joining us uh, here this afternoon minister thanks for making time for us welcome to the program of course uh, always a pleasure to be on okay so with regard to what happened in in lethbridge uh, this this has prompted these changes so what what concerned you what did you see or, or not see that you felt maybe warranted some further intervention on your part here yeah well well i think as you mentioned i think there's there's been some concern um going back for a number of years about um 
uh, free expression and academic uh, freedom on university campuses, which is why in 2019 we worked with our universities and colleges to have a statements on, on free expression. The uh, And uh, over the course of the last few years, we've continued to think about uh, ways in which uh, we can continue to strengthen free speech on campuses. Uh, we've been looking into what other jurisdictions are doing and other countries and um, have been thinking about the development of this report card that we had announced on Friday, which I think is important because if you implement a new policy, uh, develop a new uh, procedure, uh, it's important to monitor that to ensure that there is adequate compliance with those new uh, policies. I think that it's important for them to be reviewed. So the new uh, report card that we've announced on Friday, we, we will measure the degree to which universities and colleges are upholding the policies uh, that they developed back in 2019. Okay. I mean, first of all, it seems like this is an additional layer of, of red tape. Would it be unfair to describe it that way for universities? Well, we haven't uh, we haven't developed the report card yet, and that is a very important consideration. That is why I'm uh, sitting down with our universities and colleges to explore how we can implement this, uh, so that it does not add significant additional red tape, um, or uh, or that it's cumbersome in, in any way, shape, or form. But so that we can develop something that is simple and straightforward. And that can help demonstrate the degree to which a different institution is adhering to their policies on, on free speech and academic freedom. Right. And again, if a university is going to have a policy, any kind of policy, it should strive to adhere to it. And maybe one of the challenges here, though, is as much as these policies lay out some important principles, they're, they're somewhat vague. And I mean, in this instance, the University of Lethbridge feels that... They, they had a valid reason to not allow this speech to go ahead. In their view, they weren't contradicting that policy. So how do we determine whether the policy is being lived up to if we got to look at things kind of on a case-by-case -case basis? And that's why I think that uh, the, the, the monitoring and the reporting and the compliance will be very helpful because, to your point, I think regardless of the policy or the, the program, monitoring it and evaluating its effectiveness is important. Um, with uh, with the University of Lethbridge's statement on free expression, I think it's um, it's very strong and, and very clear. Uh, as an example, if I can just quote directly from it for a moment, it states that debate or deliberation on campus may not be suppressed because the ideas put forward are thought by some or even most to be offensive, unwise, immoral, or misguided. It is for individual members of the university community, not the university as an institution, to make those judgments for themselves. Um, and that's just one example. So I think it's, you know, we can take a look at statements such as those that are reflected in the policies that, and of course, all of the policies that our universities and colleges are slightly different and uh, explore and uh, provide um, that report card to ensure that our institutions are, are indeed uh, following the spirit of, of the policies that they had developed. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because, as I mentioned, there, there is one exemption. Uh, when it comes to post-secondary institutions, and it's a religious university, Berman University here in Alberta, that, that is exempt from this because the belief may be that, that they shouldn't have to allow something that goes against their values. But in this case, the University of Lethbridge is saying the speaker goes against our values. Is, is there a double standard there? Well, the Berman University did, did develop um, a policy, and and what we had done is is we had we had given every institution the ability to develop their own policy and 
and um, looked to see a number of different things and, and whether those those were reflected um, uh, in the policies that they submitted. And we gave Berman a little bit more leeway. Um, they, they're a, a private, religiously affiliated uh, university, so they don't operate in the same space that our public institutions do. Right. The government has uh, no involvement in appointing a board chair or, or other board members or anything of that nature. Uh, so, so given that unique context, we felt it appropriate to give them a little bit of latitude. Right. Well, with regard then to public universities, how much intervention can or should there be? Like, do you, would, it be a, would it have been appropriate for you to have intervened last week and say, no, 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 this, this speech needs to go ahead to overrule the university or to you know, somehow punish the university? Like, where, where do you see the limits in terms of your own intervention here? Yeah, well, I, you know, I'm always I'm always hesitant. Um, I, I don't believe that it is the role or responsibility of, of government to intervene at, at that kind of level of operational detail. I think it's important, though, for the government to set some very high-level objectives for our entire post-secondary system and individual institutions to work towards and strive towards and leave individual decision-making up to them. Um, when I spoke to the university, uh, they, they had contacted me prior to, to the announcement going public. I I, I uh, conveyed to them that I respect the, the decision that they've made, um, but that I, I might have some things to say um, about their decision. But at no time, I don't think it's appropriate for me to try and overturn a decision that has been made by any one of our universities or colleges. They have their their independent uh, board, mem- uh, board of governors and uh, administration that are there to run the operations. However, I think government should set the 50,000-foot level objectives as an example. We want to see stronger protections for free speech and academic freedom and uh, task our institutions with achieving that goal. Um, So I'm I'm hopeful that we can continue to move forward in that regard despite uh, this this past cancellation. Right. But is there then to some degree some amount of collective punishment going on here? I get the sense that some of the reaction from the other universities is, well, we don't have a problem here. We, you know, we have these policies. We're sticking to these policies. An incident at one university, it's sort of casting this, these aspersions on all of these universities. Well, the, um, you know, the, when we first introduced the, the policies in 2019, of course, that was intended to, to apply to all universities and all colleges. Um, and with the development of the new reporting requirements on Friday, um, there this is this had been something that uh, we had been looking at for some time. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, even throughout the past three and a half years, uh, there we have been looking at other measures, um, other approaches, other policy solutions. Um, so the development of the report card is something that we had been looking at and had had discussed with all university. Uh, presidents and college presidents over the past few weeks, and um, it's, it's not specifically linked to uh, a reaction to this particular um, event, but something that we had been working on uh, to ensure that we have strong protection. And I think that that's important. I think understanding the why is essential. And for me, you know, it's 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 a part of the foundational mission of a university is to create the space where. Uh, individual students can participate in, 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 a, in an exchange of ideas, debate different viewpoints, and come to their own conclusion. That helps them to be uh, incredible citizens with strong 
critical thinking skills, communication skills, and uh, um, I, I believe we have to work to foster that on our campuses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think that, that principle is valid. So the reporting requirement was announced Friday with the, the hint, I think, in the announcement that there may be more forthcoming. What, what else might or, or could be on the table here? Yeah, well, I think that nothing's been decided. I mean, at a first step, uh, I want to sit down with our university and college presidents and uh, talk about the reporting requirements and, and make sure we all uh, land on the same page about what this can look like. Uh, as I said, it's not developed because I don't have something developed that I want to impose on our universities, but rather I want to develop it together with them. Um, but, you know, as you know, it's a priority of the government to protect free speech and academic freedom. And I think that that means that um, the government is always looking at a variety of different uh, policy solutions and options. Uh, there's nothing on the table uh, past uh, the reporting requirements that we announced uh, on, on Friday. Uh, but the door is very much open to, to continue to doing homework and, and looking at what other jurisdictions are doing around the world. All right, really interesting. We'll see where that all goes from here. Minister, appreciate making some time for us this afternoon. Of course, always. All the best. You as well. Take care. Uh, Demetrius Nicolaitis, Alberta's uh, Minister of Advanced Education. So his thoughts on how universities are dealing with the matter of free speech on campus, academic freedom, and maybe suggesting we need to uh, set a higher standard in light of what happened last week at the University of Lethbridge specifically and other controversies that have come up over the years at, at other post-secondary institutions. All right, so, you know, more to come, it sounds like. Hey folks, welcome to this hour of the program. This is Afternoons on QR Calgary. Rob Breganridge with you here on this Monday afternoon. we got a lot to get to uh, on the program. Still more of your phone calls, of course, 403-974-8255. But off the top of this hour, I want to talk about what's happening in Iran, where protests there have uh, attracted international attention, but I think have fallen off the, the front page to a large extent. As, as other issues have, have taken some prominence. So it's important not to lose sight of what's happening in Iran and the very real potential that something significant, hugely significant, could come out of it. There was an op-ed uh, over the weekend uh, in the Globe and Mail on how Iran's Ayatollahs could lose here to the champions of women, life, and freedom. Now, the movement that's grown around Masa Amini's memory is unlike any other in Iran's history. So how important is this moment and what should we be watching for in the days, weeks and months ahead? Well, joining us uh, to talk more about it is the uh, uh, author of this uh, op-ed, Sally Armstrong, is a Canadian human rights activist, journalist and author. Uh, Sally, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Rob. Nice to be with you. Uh, So like I say, I I think the world's attention has started to shift away from, from what's been happening around, but that doesn't mean that this movement has gone away or that these protests are stopped. Uh, have stopped. What's your assessment right now in terms of where things are at? Well, I I think they are continuing to pick up. And I don't think they really fell out of the news. But what I noticed, which is why I wanted to write the piece, was um, what we were reading was the damage, the the number of of people killed, including children, um, the number of protesters arrested um, for really wacko reasons. But 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 things are also changing. Something's happening in Iran, and it may not work, but it's never happened before. And that's what I felt was the important piece that we should bring to uh, to the attention of the readers. Right, and we've seen protest movements in Iran before, and I mean, we we saw just I guess it was just over a decade ago um, with the, with the movement there. But 
what's what's different or what's unique about what we're seeing here? Well, I think actually the biggest thing is the unity that they have in Iran because um, like many countries in the region, um, they, they have different ethnicities, different um, religions, different cultural takes that tend not to to work together. And, and that is not happening this time. As I said in the piece, the protesters aren't saying, you know, what religion are you? Are you Baha'i? Are you uh, a Muslim? Uh, are, they're not saying, are you from the north? Are you Kurdish? Um, they're not asking these questions. They're together, and they're young. They're all young. And the protest is being spread around the country by TikTok and on Instagram, although the Ayatollahs or the Revolutionary Guards have tried to shut that down, but they're still using it. So, so this, to me, represents a generation of, of these kids have grown up under the Ayatollahs. It's always been this way for them. So, so they are the ones, they're very well educated, and they're turning against it. And, and I think the unity makes it different. But you know what, Rob, there's another issue that I thought was really important. They're not seeking revenge. They're, mm-hmm. They want justice. They want change. They want courts that work. They want laws that are correct and fair. They want human rights. And, uh, all, you know, people like the Ayatollahs, they invariably do come to an end. It is a matter of time. And, and in a revolution... You need two things. You, you need the army to turn against the uh, regime, and you need the uh, trade unions to paralyze the country. So we could talk about that as well, whether or not the Revolutionary Guards would turn, yeah. and how hard the trade unions have tried to paralyze the country, but the Guards have infiltrated every single union shop, so they're, they're trying, but they're having trouble. That's a, yeah. too long an answer for you, I'm sure. No, no, that, no, no, that was perfect. I mean, you know, we, we do know. I mean, hundreds of protesters have died. We don't know the true number. But, you know, the, the, the regime has tried to crack down on this. But that, that crackdown hasn't yet been successful. So what does that tell us? Well, is it not successful? Um, they haven't stopped them. Right. And and this has gone on. The Ayatollahs, one of them was caught, I think, on a hot mic saying this would last two to three days. <clears throat> Excuse me, now it's in its fifth month. And right. by the way, Human Rights Watch report as of about 10 days ago that 516 protesters, including 70 children, have been killed by them, wow. by the uh, Revolutionary Guards protesters who've been killed, and 15,000 have been arrested. So it's, uh, it's a disgraceful situation, but on the other hand, I don't see any sign that it's stopping. Mm-hmm. In terms of what, what prompted this, and maybe this was going to happen eventually, a lot of issues sort of building up here, but the, the death of uh, Masa Amini and, and how impactful, how symbolic that was in a lot of ways, what was it about this young girl, this young woman's tragedy that really did serve as a catalyst here? Yeah, isn't that always the way? Yeah. I mean, if if you were to name the catalyst for every revolution you've studied in history, you'd invariably be surprised by the straw that broke the camel's back. And that's what this was. A young girl, she was just trying to go home, and, and her scarf wasn't on properly. And that was that was the straw. There have been many before, and, and, and just as brutal, 
before. But again, if you study revolution, it tends to be a, a soup of of issues that come together and finally they reach the boiling point. And I believe, and maybe I'm wrong, but I believe that Iran is on the verge of uh, big change. Well, and I think that's the outcome we want. Um, you know, I know there's there's some risk then that if, if this is seen as, you know, the U.S. stirring up trouble, the West stirring up trouble, that could be problematic for this movement, but we don't want to be indifferent either. So how should we, uh, as, as outsiders, approach this? You know what? I think you asked the best question, and I think it's about time we ask that question for every conflict. That's what I do as a journalist. I cover conflict, but I cover it from the point of view of what happens to women and girls. And so often I look at the help coming from the West, and I have to wonder if it's being delivered in the way that is best for the people. I'm not against the help, of course. I mean, look what happened in Afghanistan. For 20 years, so much changed because of help from the West. In fact, you know, the life expectancy of Afghans went from 47 years to 63 years in the 20 years the world was there, quote, helping. But then it collapsed. And I think we have to look at that. And now with Iran, what the Iranian people are saying is don't come in here and try to change what we're doing. We know where we want to go with this. We're going to push for it. And they don't want someone else telling them how to run their country. This uh, op-ed, as we mentioned, it's up at uh, theglobeandmail.com and much more at sallyarmstrong.ca. Sally, really appreciate the insight uh, on all of this. Thanks so much for making some time for us here. Oh, it was nice to chat with you, Rob. Likewise, all the best. Uh, that is uh, veteran human rights activist, author, journalist uh, Sally Armstrong uh, talking about the situation in Iran and uh, her op-ed, which in part is, is saying, don't forget about what's happening there. And, and why this is so unique and why this, this matters. It's really interesting. Well, it's been said that it feels like everything is broken in Canada right now. Is that a political talking point? Is that an overly pessimistic way uh, of trying to, to paint the government in the worst possible light? Or is that a reflection of how Canadians are feeling? I don't know if it's possible to objectively assess the statement. And, and maybe that's secondary to, to whether Canadians are feeling it. Because then the question becomes, well, why? Why are Canadians feeling it? And so how concerned should political leaders be about that amount of, of pessimism? So some recent polling done uh, by Leger engaging Canadians on that very statement and, and how they feel about it finds a surprisingly large number of Canadians agree with it. Total of 67%. So two-thirds of Canadians either strongly agree or some would agree with the statement that it feels like everything is broken in this country right now. So why might that be? What do these numbers tell us? Well, joining us to, to dive a little bit deeper here, very pleased to welcome the programmer this afternoon, Andrew Enns, Executive Vice President uh, with the company Leger, lead researcher on this data. Andrew, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks very much, uh, Rob. Great to be on your program. So it seems like this one is, is a pretty straightforward question. Here's the statement. Do you agree or, or disagree? Was that basically the, the gist of this? Uh, exactly. You know, we, did, we didn't name the, the politician that is... Right. Uh, 
been using it, but we did uh, we did indicate it was from a uh, Canadian politician, and then we just provided the statement, and, and then just a straight up agree disagree. Mm-hmm. So th- yeah, that, that's I, I mean I don't know how surprised you were. I mean th- those are some pretty big numbers. What, what did you make of the findings first of all? Well, yes, I was a little bit uh, a little bit surprised. I, I I thought there would be a. Uh, I, I was quite frankly expecting, uh, you know, a, a sort of a sizable minority. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sometimes in these situations, uh, when you you sort of hear a lot about something, um, I always kind of think that maybe it's kind of more of a of a noisy, kind of the noisiest uh, couple of folks in the crowd, and not necessarily the the the, the bulk of the crowd itself. But but on this one. Uh, uh, I was taken a little bit aback that it was, uh, you know, over two thirds, as you said in your introduction, sixty-seven uh, percent, and uh, and pretty pretty solid across the country in terms of, uh, you know, that majority sentiment. So it's, um, yeah, it's it's and it's something that you know you can't. Uh, I, I don't think you can just easily discount. I mean, obviously there's a political element to this, but. Right. I think uh, there's a lot of people that it's a, it's it's a little runs a little deeper than that. Well, this is the thing. I mean, it's it's easy for politicians to stand up and say things are great, things are terrible, and, and that's what they do. I mean, the question is which way are Canadians leaning? How do they feel, and and why? Right? And it's important to understand the why. I think, and and this you know the the survey here, the polling unpacks that a little bit more. Now, the question of of how people feel like the country's being managed right now. There, there's a lot of frustration. There's well, there's anger. I guess we could call it. Well, yes, we 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 asked uh, another fairly straightforward question in terms of just how do how would people characterize themselves in terms of being, you know, uh, angry or uh, you know or happy these days, and you know we had degrees of of both, and fifty um, you percent know, uh, described themselves as being, uh, you know, currently angry right now, and. And, and I think the the thing that's sort of interesting when when I unpack that just one step more, twenty um, percent of Canadians describe themselves as being very angry, mm-hmm. as opposed to four percent of Canadians who describe themselves as being very happy. And you know, quite often when I look at the results of some of these questions, that intensity, those intensity uh, um, anchors, you know, the very, in this case, happy versus the very angry are, are kind of important to look at. And and there's a sizable difference there. And, and 20% of Canadians being very angry, they're, I don't think that's really that great, to be honest. Um, yeah. My perspective. Right. I mean, you know, some interesting demographic findings too. Maybe not surprisingly, some of that, that frustration or anger is a little more intense in Alberta, as, as one example, that might not surprise a lot of folks in our audience, but it was interesting to see some of the differences between men and women, that more women actually said they were angry than men, but it's it's more likely that men are going to identify as, as very angry. So maybe there's there's more intensity to that anger when it comes from men, but, but women seem uh, to be feeling even more frustrated right now. Well, you're uh, you're uh, you're good to point that out because uh, that one that was another finding that did catch my attention that uh, uh, that I wasn't really expecting, and it was on the on the anger question as well as on the uh, do you agree you know things feel broken. We had more women, and I think part of that, in and you know based on some other research that we've been doing over the year at Leger, um, the the inflationary 
you know, the affordability challenges that we're all been we've we've been grappling with, and many in the country have, have certainly been grappling with, as well as the healthcare struggles that um, you know we've been reading a lot about in the media, and and, uh, and obviously households are are dealing with that. Those are two areas where um, women predominantly are more active in. Um, you know, I don't want to be stereotyping here, but still, it's it's still often the case that, you know, women are, are, are in charge of sort of the day-to-day household budgets. They're they're uh, they're looking after a lot of sort of the, you know, children going to school and expenses right. with that, and maybe if it's closed, and likewise, maybe on the, on the grocery side. Mm-hmm. Um, and on the healthcare side, we, all, we always see that, that um, women are much more sort of a, acutely impacted by sort of challenges with the healthcare system. And and on both those fronts, it's not great. Uh, it's not a great environment right now in the country. I mean, you know, the high inflation seems to be sort of leveling off a bit, but you still got interest rates that are problematic and, and creating problems for households. And certainly on the healthcare front, and so those are two big items that I think women are certainly they're paying attention to that, and they're not they're not very uh, not very pleased. Yeah, and I mean, as the premiers and the prime minister get set to talk healthcare this week, kind of a warning to to all involved here that that you know Canadians are paying attention, Canadians are feeling frustrated about healthcare at the moment, and so yeah, that that, that there needs to be something done here. But in terms of, of those issues that are you know most driving some of these sentiment, healthcare is on the list, but uh, definitely yeah, you alluded to it already. It's it's cost of living, it's inflation, it's interest rates. That's that's top of the list, isn't it? It is for sure. Uh, you know the the uh, and, and I and I would add, you know, in, in your neck of the woods, uh, you know, the the affordability, affording a place to live. You know, I don't know. Uh, um, I know obviously housing prices have been in the news a lot um, for for several years in terms of the, the the high cost. But but I think what I've been hearing a lot about more recently is is the is the rising rents. So even. You know, even whether ownership's a, you know, a ways down the road or, or maybe even off the table, even renting is getting to be a challenge. And uh, so these things are, um, these things are high on on the radar for Canadians. And you know, the interesting thing is, and we tried to unpack that sort of why people think feel things are 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 great in the country. There's a perception that their governments, and I say governments plural, provincial governments, federal yeah. governments probably even municipal there's a perception that they're not they're not in sync with what the uh, what, what what the the broad cross section of the population feels important and i think that's kind of the the challenge for governments Oh, indeed. Uh, much more on all of this at uh, leger360.com andrew thanks so much for making some time for us here today really appreciate this Oh, much appreciate the uh, the time to speak with you, Rob. Have a good rest of your program. You as well, Andrew. Thanks. Or at least good rest of his day. I don't know if he's doing a program. but uh, Anyway, Andrew Enns, uh, Executive Vice President with uh, Leger, lead researcher on this uh, uh, this survey. So, yeah, it was obviously Pierre Poiliev, conservative leader, who made the statement that it feels like everything is broken in Canada right now. So what he says, I think they wanted to take just some of the politics out of it. Like, just here's the statement. Do you agree or disagree with that? Because if you say the name of the politician, it, it, I don't know, it, it's, it could skew the results a little bit. But regardless, I mean, yeah, it was, it was something that was said by the conservative leader and a lot of Canadians, it resonates with them. So that should be of concern to the liberals, to Justin Trudeau. Because their response right now is that it's not true. Canada's not broken. Pierre Polyev's being... 
uh, overly pessimistic, too much doom and gloom. So the problem for the liberals, though, is that Canadians kind of agree with what Pierre's saying. And so if that's the mood uh, of the country, or at least a majority of the country, and then you tell them that it's not true, that could backfire. You know, so the people that hear that statement and say, yeah, you know what, I, I feel like that's what it feels like to me. It feels like everything's broken right now. And along comes another politician that says, no, 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 that's not true. Like, do you really think that those people are going to say, oh, oh, good. Okay. Sorry. I thought it was. It's not. Okay. No problem then. Never mind. That's not how it works. If people are feeling a certain way and you're dismissive of that, then you're just going to be seen as out of touch. And that doesn't translate into votes. But here's the thing. I don't think this is just a problem for the prime minister. Clearly it is. But isn't that a problem for provincial governments too? Isn't that a challenge here in Alberta? Because Albertans are much more likely to agree with the, the, the notion that everything seems broken right now. Respondents in Alberta were also the least likely to say they were happy. 61% of Alberta respondents uh, said they were angry, almost half saying very angry. Now, sure, a lot of that's uh, directed at, at the federal government. But is, is the provincial government completely absolved here as well? Because how can both be true? How can everything seem broken right now, but in Alberta, everything is fine? You can't really disentangle that and say, well, yeah, but the stuff that Ottawa controls is broken. The stuff that the province controls is, is fine. Like, I don't think it works that way. Like either things are okay here right now or they're not. And so there is that duality of message where the federal government's trying to say, yeah, everything's fine. Clearly Canadians feel differently. But it's also the Alberta government saying that, you know, things are pretty good here. So I don't know. Is it possible to, to think both are true, that things are broken and things are fine? It doesn't feel like it. And that might be the challenge here in Alberta. You know, it's one thing to say, hey, you know, federal government, this, these liberals, Justin Trudeau, we've got big problems with them. You know, that's a message that, that's going to resonate in Alberta right now. Okay, fair enough. But then to say, you know, things are good, things are great. A lot of great things happening in Alberta. The economy's looking up. You know, we've, we've addressed the cost of living issues. Are people going to buy that? Are people going to accept that things are good in Alberta, even at the same time as people say that they feel like things are broken? Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.